Delhi. Oh, it was a rich time of giving praise to our God, and uh, so good. And God's spirits downstairs with the children and young people, and that's really good as well. I was in August 2014, so about eight and a half years ago. My father had been getting ill for a couple of years before that, but he ended up in hospital. Um, and over the month, he became more and more poorly, and eventually he was really unconscious and the medic spoke to me and my stepmother and said that they thought they should withdraw treatment because his organs were shutting down, this kind of usual process in which someone's dying. And so uh, we agreed to that and I'd never been that close to my father. He was quite emotionally absent. Um, any time you got to talk about anything profound, whether it was faith or anything profound, he would divert the subject quickly to something quite superficial. And um, anyway, there was the last Saturday in August that year, he, he would, as I say, he was comatose, he was unconscious, and I went in to sit with him on that Saturday. And, um, I, but, but when I went in, I found him sitting up reading the paper. And uh, he had rallied, which, by the way, I, I, I took as an amazing gift from God, which it was, but it can actually happen quite often. So, um, But I was able to spend the day with him and talk with him, and I kind of stirred up courage. I said, normally when I visit people in hospital, I would pray with them. And, uh, and he then just started pouring out, I just don't know that I can have any hope. And for the first time in his whole life, kind of the real hymns came out. And, and I was able just to say, look, uh, the, Jesus said that anyone who comes to me, I'll never cast out. And, um, uh, and just assured him. And then I said, can I, can I pray now? And I felt inspired. Do you know, you're in those moments. I hadn't really planned this. A lot of things I don't plan. I don't know about you. Just looking for the Spirit to help you, aren't you, each day with stuff. And I thought, oh, I know, I'll pray the Lord's Prayer. And I know, I'll pray the old kind of prayer book version because man of his age, he must have prayed that at school. And so I just prayed, you know, uh, um, our Father who art in heaven. And then he prayed it back. And phrase by phrase, he prayed the Lord's Prayer back to me. And... Um, uh, later that evening, he fell back into unconsciousness, and the next evening he, he died. So, um, so I trust God that you know it's a good prayer, don't you think? And so I want to pray this prayer today because it's from this prayer that we took our theme that we've been following these last few weeks and a couple of weeks more, which is "Your Kingdom Come." Not using the prayer book version. Um, so I've used the Christian Standard Bible. I've just been using that recently and enjoying it. So but most of the words are very similar to the NIV. From verse nine of Matthew six, therefore, because the disciples had asked Jesus to teach them to pray, and Jesus says, well, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then some later manuscripts add this uh, phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Which is certainly true, but probably not original. So I want to uh, focus on verse 10, 
and on how Jesus uses the words in verse 10. And then we go to verse 12. Okay, so that's where, all we're going to do this morning. Um, I want to answer, try to answer several questions, which is on this next slide. What did Jesus mean when he said earth? What did Jesus mean when he said kingdom? Uh, which is our theme over these weeks. What did Jesus mean when he said heaven? Uh, how are the kingdom and heaven related? How, how are the kingdom and heaven and church related? And then what does it have to do with me anyway today? Uh, which is where verse 12 will come in. So what did Jesus mean when he said earth? Um, which is the next slide. Um, well, what he meant is this. Next slide. Um, exactly. This planet on which we stand, the blue planet, it's uh, full of life, it's round, it's marvellous, and it's broken. Uh, and that's what Jesus was referring to when he mentions earth. So that's one answer, okay? Number two, what did Jesus mean when he said, your kingdom? He's encouraging us, giving us words that we would pray to God the Father. And in this request, we read, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Elspeth and I and our family, we quite like to play board games. One of the games we like to play is Ticket to Ride. Anyone played Ticket to Ride? Some of you know this game. You can get an American version or European version. This is a picture of the European version. And uh, you play it by taking train journeys. And the rules state, if I remember rightly, that the person who starts the game is the person who has visited the most countries. Is that, does anyone remember that? Uh, the trouble is, I have visited a lot of countries. I don't know quite how I managed it, but I have. So uh, that's always me, in the, uh, nearly always any, in every situation I've been in. Um, but the kingdom of God is not a geographical country. You cannot get to it by plane or train. It's not in Israel, for example. So where is it, you might say? Well, in uh, Luke chapter 17, and verse 20 to 21, one of the other Gospels, um, uh, we read that once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, or an alternative translation is within you. So the Jewish people actually knew this, and I'm not sure we always do as well as they did, because they knew that the correct question about God's kingdom started with the word when. Do you notice that? They said, when, when would the kingdom of God come? It's not where, it's when. Proper questions to do with the kingdom are questions of chronology, not geography. Now, I was born in The Hague in the Netherlands, all right, we lived in uh, one of these buildings, in an apartment in one of these buildings here. And um, I love Holland because I was born there. You know, it gives you an, an attachment. I left it too late to get Dutch citizenship, sadly. Um, but I wouldn't get Dutch citizenship by you coming up to me afterwards and saying to me, your Netherlands come. <laughs> right? That's not going to work. Do you, do, you, do you get that? So it kind of illustrates that the kingdom is different to countries. It's not a geographical place. And so uh, one of the uh, a New Testament scholar called George Eldon Ladd, who's been, who's been particularly famous for transforming the church's understanding of the kingdom of God, says the kingdom is primarily the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God, and then only derivatively the sphere in which the rule is experienced. So when we ask God for his kingdom to come, we're asking that his rule, his, his reign, his will would be done in us on earth. And it's a prayer that Christ would be king and lord 
of our money, our sex lives, our attitudes, our tongues, our politics, our worship, our use of our time, our work life, our relationship with food, anything you want to list, everything about humanity, we're asking him to come and rule over. It's to ask that he would come and be king inside of us because if the kingdom is anywhere, it's within you. Right? And the kingdom grows not by weapons and guns and tanks. It grows as the gospel captures individual hearts and we fall in love with Jesus. And then that when you love Jesus, you will obey his commands. You come under his loving rule and we accept his rule. So like the Pharisees, though, we Christians also want to know, well, when will this kingdom come? Because we don't see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven very much. And so we are, we are asking that same question, when will this kingdom come? And to this, Jesus gave three different answers. I'll just mention the three here, and there'll be a text of scripture here. So Jesus said the kingdom is arriving, right? The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, next slide, he says, the kingdom has arrived and is present. Uh, uh, he, he'd expelled some evil spirits from somebody and says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? When a person is, is set free from demonic oppression, it's because the rule of God has come and the authority of heaven has cast that evil oppression out from their lives. So the kingdom has arrived at that to that extent. And then thirdly, the kingdom is yet to arrive. It's still to come. It is not yet present. Jesus said near the end of the Gospel of Luke, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And uh, if you take all the scriptures, this is when Jesus returns to earth. That's when his kingdom will finally and fully come to earth. There will be no more uh, evil. There will be no more people um, Suffering, there'll be no more sickness. That is the fulfillment of the kingdom. So, to quote George Eldon Ladd again, when the first coming of Je with the first coming of Jesus, we have its introduction. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is near. With the second coming of Jesus, we'll have its consummation. We live between those two times in the presence of the future. The resurrection was God bringing his future into our present. It's a down payment that the whole of the cosmos will be resurrected. And this is what we look for. The kingdom is in us, but it's not complete yet. The kingdom is moving among us, but it's not complete yet. And this is the tension we live in, wondering, we, we want, we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But, and, it is, and in answer to our prayer, more of God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, but not yet fully. <coughs> Excuse me. What did Jesus mean then when he said heaven? Well, Jesus linked the kingdom and heaven in his prayer, didn't he? Verse 10, your kingdom come, and in parallel with that prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when our children were young, someone they knew died, and uh, we told them they'd gone to heaven, and so we'd not be able to visit them anymore. But one of our daughters replied, well, of course we can visit them. We can visit them when we go on holiday. So we said, what? Well, Daddy, we go to North Heaven every summer. <laughs> no, no, not North Heaven, North Devon. <laughs> it's like, uh, obviously not said with that kind of impatience, but um, 
you know, children get these words, you know, muddled up and they need, I remember the prayer to the holy syrup as well. <laughs> the, uh, children give you these delightful things. Listen, if you've got children, it's worth keeping a book and jotting these things down because you forget them. Every now and then we go back to our book and we read it and I just laugh out loud funny some of the stuff that happened. So there's... When, when Jesus used the words heaven here, there are at least four different ways, well, th- definitely three or four different ways the word heaven's used in the Bible. I'm just drilling into some detail here, okay, before we get to verse 12, because I think we need to constantly be recalibrated against Scripture. And there are some different views coming out here, but I, I think most of this is fairly straightforward. So heaven can just mean God, an alternative word for God. Uh, you know, like sometimes you'll hear in the, on the, the, the radio or TV news or read in the paper, Buckingham Palace announces. Well, it's not like there's a mouth on the front of Buckingham Palace that, that kind of... Agreed? It's, it's, it's a placeholder for saying, the king has announced, isn't it? Right? Buckingham Palace has announced means the king has announced. And it's the same with this word heaven. Sometimes the word heaven in the Bible is as a stand-in for God. So like in Matthew's gospel, he normally says the kingdom of heaven, whereas Luke says the kingdom of God. It's the same thing, okay? Heaven can mean God. That's one of the meanings of the word heaven. Next, usually in the plural, when it says the heavens, that means the universe, the visible created universe, all the stars and galaxies, the Milky Way, the blue sky, everything kind of of the firmament. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says. The skies proclaim his hand. Thirdly, uh, and I don't think either of those meanings are what Jesus means here in this prayer. Thirdly, heaven can mean God's abode, the realm where God's will is perfectly done. Now this looks like a good fit. Because in verse 9, we've already started, there's two mentions of heaven, but one in verse 9, one in verse 10. Right, our Father in heaven, your name be honoured as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. We often think heaven's up, earth's down, don't we? I don't know whether that's really true, but it's, it's hard to get our heads around these things, doesn't it? I think heaven's a real place. Uh, we're told in Acts 1.11 and 2 Thessalonians 1.7 that when Jesus ascended after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven, and we're told he will return from heaven when he comes back to earth at his second coming. So if heaven is a place, because Jesus is in a resurrected body now forever, it is a kind of place where physical beings can be, um, but it's like mind-boggling. It's, uh, these things are not to- totally made clear in Scripture, but there's something about that going on. It's also the, the abode of angels, where angels live. So then, the, just, I just want to kind of dive off a little bit here. So you might say, well, Andrew, is that the heaven we go to when we die? I just want to, because I, that's what I told my children. Do you remember that story I told earlier? This lady had died. I said, you know, she's gone to heaven. Um, and, and, and I, but I'm not sure that's strictly true um, because the Bible tells us that in a sense this new creation, this new heavens and earth, it doesn't exist yet. That won't be created till Jesus comes back. We have one resurrection so far, that's Jesus. That's the down payment. All the other resurrection we have yet to see. We're waiting for it. So in that intermediate, if I die soon, it's a possibility, there are two options that Bible scholars uh, suggest. One is that there will be a sleep waiting for the resurrection. It's called soul sleep. And that's built on the many verses in the Bible. You, you'll perhaps remember it says, you know, this person fell asleep. 
And it was a way of talking about them dying. Stephen was stoned to death. It says he fell asleep. And uh, there's so many occasions in the New Testament where it describes death in that way that some people have drawn a theological implication from that that actually we will be asleep until the resurrection after we die. So that, that's one possible view that you might hold. And the other is that we, um, because there's verses that seem to imply that we'll be consciously aware the moment we've died, so that we could be a disembodied but in some conscious existence. And that would be what the, in the place the Old Testament calls Sheol, or the New Testament calls Hades. A lot of English translations, like the authorised version, have really muddled this by translating Hades as hell, but also the Greek word Gehenna as hell. But actually it's only Gehenna which is hell. Hades is just the abode of the dead, the place of the dead. And, and, and there's like a good side of Hades, which is, I think, potentially called paradise. Yep, so the, the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. So the geography of these things, if you like, is a little bit woolly in Scripture. But the main thing to remember is Jesus' promise in John 14, that he says that he will come to take us to be with him where he is. That's the promise that we can rest on. So wh where it is exactly is completely indifferent because what we know is, if you believe in Christ, Christ is going to come to you uh, when you die and he's going to take you to be with him where he is. And wherever he is, if he's there, I'm happy. Yep, that's a good place to be. And if you are not confident about what's going to happen when you die, I want to tell you, you need to get to a place of peace with God because you cannot really live until you've learned how to die. Um, so... Um, you know, we could, you could say, well, uh, so Hades will not be our permanent home because we won't have a body. And it's very clear in Scripture that God is saying our real home is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. So, um, but you say, but Andrew, aren't we citizens of heaven? Yes, we're citizens of heaven because we have become those who are following the rule of God. And heaven is the place where God's rule is done perfectly, yeah, where his will is followed. Uh, but he's saying, but our inheritance has been kept in heaven for us. That still doesn't make it our destination. I think shorthand we can say we're going to be in heaven, but I'm technically not sure that's quite right. Um, Tom Wright says that heaven likens heaven to a fridge where the champagne is cooling ready for the party. To go to the party, you don't climb into the fridge. right? When Jesus comes back, Read the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. When Jesus comes back, heaven is going to come back to earth, which is what God has always wanted. Because what happened at the beginning of the book of Genesis is that heaven and earth got separated. The rule of God was rejected. And God has been at work through a tabernacle and temple and foremost through his son to make the way back where heaven can be reconciled to earth. And individually we can already experience that, but the whole cosmos will experience that when Jesus returns. And that is so wonderful and important. So that in a sense is the fourth word. I think as Christians we often use heaven as this shorthand uh, for this uh, fulfillment and renewal of the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection of all things. And... Um, and uh, so, in a sense, it's not that we'll be going soon, it's that he'll be coming soon. That's what we're looking forward to. And for home for us Christians is that new heavens and new earth. So um, let's just, and Dan spoke wonderfully about these expectations using the rope a few weeks ago. I do want to encourage you to listen to that if you weren't here. What is the church then? How does that fit in? Well, the church is a sort of subset of the kingdom. 
The kingdom is God's rule, wherever it might be. So even people who don't acknowledge God are to some extent subject to God's overruling, guiding rule. Um, they may be rebelling, they, they won't do everything he wants, but you just read the Old Testament, you'll see many of the emperors of the ancient world ended up doing something God had planned that they would do. They did lots of things he didn't want them to do, but if there was something he really wanted them to do, he could direct their heart and their will to do that. So God can act in all kinds of ways like that, but the, commu- the church is the community of people who are actively wanting God to rule in their lives. But I don't know about you, I'm not entirely successful at allowing that to happen. Agreed? I, 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 I fail, I trip over, I allow him to take the steering wheel sometimes, and other times I'm firmly gripping that steering wheel myself because of all kinds of other things, and I need to let go and let him do that. So what does this mean uh, for us today? I'd like to quote from a, a, a man who spent several decades working in South India, sharing Christ amongst people there uh, in the last century, a guy called Leslie Newbigin. He says, um, there's a slide here about this, so the church is not the kingdom of God, but Jesus manifestly did not intend to leave behind him simply a body of teaching, like a book to hand out or a pamphlet. What he did was to prepare a community chosen to be the bearer of the secret of the kingdom. This community is his legacy. The intention of Jesus was not to leave behind a disembodied teaching. It was that through his total consecration to the Father, in his passion, that's his crucifixion, there should be created a community which would continue that which he came from the Father to be and do, namely to embody and to announce the presence of the reign of God. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is this, to embody and announce the reign, the presence of the reign of God. This is what we're about. When we're working with who lets the dads out, when we're working with the Afghan refugees, when we're working at Coffee and Chaos, we are seeking to embody and announce the presence of the reign of God, which so many people say, oh, there's no God, nothing. No, we're amongst those saying, yes, there, there, really, there really is a God. He is alive. He is real. His reign can be experienced. It's hidden in many ways now, but he's offering amnesty for people to come back to receive his rule afresh. So, in a sense, we do three things to do this. I suggest you we should experience the goods of the kingdom ourselves. In recent weeks, we've been looking at things like joy, peace, freedom. These are the goods of the kingdom. You know, you cannot be a credible travel agent if you haven't been there yourself, yeah? If you will not enjoy these things yourself, how can you tell others about them? So we're to experience these things ourselves. And then we demonstrate them to others. We show and reveal these things to others. We maybe pray for people to be healed. We tell them, I'm going to pray that you get a new job soon. And then, and then they do. We, we, we reach out and we extend ourselves, and that's what we're doing. Or like in Turkey and Syria, uh, we have sister churches in Turkey. Within a couple of days, teams of them, at least 30, had gone to the earthquake area. One team has been feeding 2,000 people a day, another team 5,000 people a day with hot meals. The, the, the regional governor has been to visit them. They're doing such a great work. And they're doing it in the name of Christ in a Muslim country, okay? And so then the regional governor said they could have as much food. They would supply them with food. They would give them trucks so that they could continue their work. Others' teams have gone from our churches. They've been building.
building things that are better than tents. They've got metal frames and corrugated uh, sort of steel or plastic, I don't know which material, but it's much more substantial than a tent, gives more protection. Uh, we have been, the churches, our churches here in the UK collected over £250,000 to help support this work that's being done. And of course we know that the DEC, the Disasters Emergency Committee, uh, collected many millions as well, and there's other good works being done. But we Christians are also playing our part, demonstrating, displaying the goods of the kingdom, and then also with actions, that is, and then we also announce the kingdom of God with our words. So today's good, I must really push along here. Today's good is forgiveness. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's an assumption, Jesus says this is a prayer we should pray, a prayer we should pray. There's an assumption, therefore, that I will need to ask forgiveness. I want to say to you, you know, if you've gone, if you're a Christian and you identify as a Christian and you've gone maybe two or three weeks and you've never thought of anything that you needed to ask God and say, oh God, please forgive me, your heart is hard. It's not in the right place, really. You, you are in a bad place. You need to cry out to God and say, God, I haven't felt wrong about anything I've done. You need, you need God. You say to God, please come and tenderize my heart because it, I can't be in a good place. Because uh, if you've managed three weeks of being perfect, well, um, are, are you hearing me? I, with all seriousness, I'm saying, ask God to soften your heart and plow up that fallow ground. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis said, you might say well, it seems like God's making our forgiveness dependent on us forgiving others. Well, it almost is kind of true that, you know, because C.S. Lewis says this, a person who can admit no guilt can accept no forgiveness. If you don't feel you have any guilt, well, you won't need any forgiveness, will you? It's only those, in a sense, who, who've got that. The, the message Jesus taught is that God's no longer demanding that we suffer for what we did wrong because Jesus suffered on the cross for what we did wrong. And that's because God didn't want to demand that we suffer. He wants to bless us. That's why he punished Jesus in our place. And the cross is God's way of making possible our forgiveness. And on the cross, God modeled mercy. God's generosity conditions us to be generous, especially generous with mercy. Well, how's that? Well, when we truly receive God's mercy, it's about realizing we don't deserve his mercy, but we still get it if we ask for it. It's undeserved. God has been so generous with each of us, hasn't he? Freeing us from all our debts. Uh, some sins are not so bad, but some we really, really bitterly regret. And it's so hard to let God forgive us because we, we just think, how could I? I, I just, we so, long want to, uh, so badly want to undo something that we've said or done, but we can't undo it. We can't only unsay it. But we have to let God forgive us. And that's, that can be very hard, but by faith, we need to accept that what God did in punishing Jesus on the cross counts. We don't have to suffer to earn that forgiveness. Jesus suffered to make that forgiveness a gift to us. Isn't that extraordinary? That you are set free from having to suffer for the, your sin by Christ. That's just extraordinary. It's unbelievably wonderful and should fill us with praise and worship. And then being aware that I need forgiveness opens me up to forgive others. How can I withhold from them that which I need so badly myself? 
If God did not withhold his only son but made him suffer for my wrongdoing, can't I let go of insisting that someone else suffer for wronging me? Now, of course, if someone's committed a crime against you, while you, you do need to do the work of forgiving, I think you should also go and report it to the police and make a statement and witness in court because otherwise they may go on to harm others and it's a civic duty to do that. But that's for the courts then to decide an appropriate punishment, not for you to punish. You need to let go because forgiveness is laying down our plans to hurt back, to inflict harm, to make the other person suffer. So we're both recipients of forgiveness, aren't we? And we are donors of forgiveness to others. You know, you can live in a house of judgment or a house of mercy. You can live in a house of joy or a house of despair. A house of peace or a house of distress. The kingdom is inviting us to let go of living in the house of distress, you know, the house of judgment, because the kingdom of God is a house of mercy. But this kingdom of this world is a house of judgment. I mean, look at Twitter or Facebook. I mean, it's filled with judgment, isn't it? Which kingdom are you enjoying actually right now? Are your thoughts filled with the faults of others, of the deficiencies of your workplace, the annoyances at church? Is that are you living in a house of judgment? No, we want to live in a house of mercy, don't we? Where we're, we're, we're liberal. So we need people who help us in that, you know. I mean, yesterday we were driving in Bradford, I might say, it's where we live, and uh, I said, there was two cars, I said, oh, those drivers are so dim. And, um, right, judgment, judgment, judgment. So Elspeth, you see, she's a faithful friend. She challenged me. I thought, yes, yep. So I thought, it's not, I shouldn't have said that. It's not really right. They didn't drive very well, by the way, but... Who am I to say that they are dim? Do you, do you understand? So, obviously, if I was a police officer, it'd be my place to judge their driving. Um, and, but do you have somebody? So, Elspeth's a faithful friend, my wife, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Um, do you have people who'll tell you and rebuke you for what comes out of your mouth when you're speaking judgment? How about in community groups? We even have a little discussion one day and agreed, you know what, let's not have any judgment. Let, let our community group be a house of mercy. right? Let, and let's be ready to just say, hey, is that house of mercy talk? <coughs> Boom, yeah? Well, it might be a good thing. James 2.12, 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Whoa. Right, the Apostle James was Jesus' brother. He knew what Jesus had taught, didn't he? But listen, mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you glad for that? Praise God. So let's be generous with our motives, our ministry, our money, with our forgiving of others. Um, and uh, God help us in that. So... Um, you know, forgiveness is a... Well, I'll just jump to stories at the end here, you know. Um, my dad, just going back to my dad, he was never actively unkind to anyone, but he was a coward, and he left many things unaddressed, unsaid. 
And that left a lot of mess after he died to sort out with my stepmother and stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to forgive people who've died. Just throwing that out there, you have to do these things. And, you know, well, part of the greatest pain I had after he died, oh, I'm really messing up on time, so let's just, uh, um, you know, I, I just needed to forgive him for all kinds of things and let that go. You know, and he never, never said, I love you. I think I've told the story before. The last couple of years before he died, I felt God saying to me, every time I left him after visiting, I should tell him I love you. And uh, he could never say it back, like this or something. And when he died, one of my greatest feelings was, I'm never going to get him saying, I love you, or I think you've done well. You have to let go of those things. And... Um, and then, you know, another thing, we have to forgive ourselves about things. I was back on the Sunday night with my dad when he was comatose in hospital, the last Sunday of August in 2014. His breathing became more ragged, dying quite peacefully, as many people do. But I thought I should pop out and give an update to my stepmother on the phone, because I believe sometimes when people are comatose, they can still hear. That's, I've proved that, actually, but that's another story. Um, I popped out for five minutes, I phoned my stepmother. When I got back in, he died. I felt, oh my goodness, I've let him down. And, you know, I've, I've had to let myself go, let, let myself off about that. But it's, it's not a moment you can get back, is it? You, you know? But just earlier this week, I was reading this secular book by a doctor with the end in mind. And there was a passage where it just said, that actually lots of people only die when their relatives have stepped out of the room. I was like a massive weight just lifted off me. I just thought, oh God, that's so helpful. Thank you, God. It just helped me to really finally forgive myself nearly you know, nine years after the event. So listen, do you want to stand together? We're going to, maybe Faye could come and play the pianos quietly. Oh, I've kind of had a bit of a fail here today, this morning. Sorry about this, guys. We've just got 15 minutes, though, to... <clears throat> we want to ask the Holy Spirit to come. And this is time for us to relax. Stop, don't start thinking about what's happening the rest of the day. Zone in to what God has spoken to you. By faith, you can, we can each meet with God actually now. There may be something you did feel bad about, but you haven't asked God for forgiveness for it. And you're going to do that now. So Holy Spirit, come and remind us of anything where you want us to give it to you. We've been carrying it around for so long, that heavy load of shame or guilt and you want to take it right off us I've got my little model wheelie bin here you know Jesus is a great bin to put your rubbish in come and get your rubbish put it in the bin put it at the foot of the cross let him carry it away because he suffered for that and maybe there are people that you need to forgive 
They might have died. And that daily choice not to plan to harm them, not to be plotting how to inflict hurt on them, the choice to drop that. It's a very, very hard choice to make, but by, with the Spirit's help, you can make that choice. And you know, when you forgive other people, it feels like you're setting them free, but actually you'll find you've set yourself free. And maybe your workplace, maybe your family is like a house of judgment. And God's calling you to be an agent, an ambassador of his kingdom and saying, I want you to work towards making it, turning it into a house of mercy. You're going to be able to bring change in that place. He's commissioning you. We're just going to have some... felt in preparing that God wanted some of us to get really drunk on his see we've perhaps begun to feel that God's very measured and but you know his mercy is given without measure it's a great tide it's a great wave it's a great ocean of his mercy wherever you've been, however far away you've been from God, that mercy is there. However black or awful what it is you've thought or said or done, His mercy is greater. Believe it. Let this extravagant mercy come and wash over you. saying well I don't know if that's for me well I want to tell you it is 
So if you've, if you've brought something to the foot of the cross, some guilt and shame, you're going to leave it there. In Jesus' name, I cut everybody free from the guilt and shame they're leaving right now. Name it before God in your heart, whatever it is. Name it before him, leave it there. Now you can stand up and look up as God is smiling on you. He has been pleased to give you the kingdom, to give you his mercy, to give you peace with him, to restore joy. Now walk into that. He's paid the price in full, so believe in what he's done. good with God, just be praying for the Spirit to move on, on others in His wonderful kindness, okay? Don't, don't zone out. This is a connection point between heaven and earth right now. about forgiving myself maybe you've been processing that now over something something you've carried and carried but you're included too in what God wants to do today and I hope you've processed that with him anybody here felt that call you're in a house of judgment maybe it's the workplace or family a club you're part of 
Do you have faith, baby, that you would be the agent to change that house of judgment to a house of mercy? Just want to raise a hand to God, say, God, I'm willing, send me. Here am I, send me. We're sent to be peacemakers, aren't we? Blessed are the peacemakers. Can you be a person who brings mercy, changes the atmosphere in that organization? You know, it's too much for me. We just say to God, you're willing. Here am I, God, send me. Just stay with God, but we can sing otherwise. <laughs> 